Okay, welcome back to Hints and Guesses. My podcast, this is Kent Dobson. Uh, I don't know why I'm all of a sudden think that's funny. Uh, maybe it's funny that I have a podcast. And this is maybe episode 76, and or somewhere close to that. And thank you for listening. And special thanks to my patrons. I can't do it without you. And today, um, I'm embarking on a, an, ex, uh, an experiment. I've been hinting around about this for, for a while, that I want to explore some biblical text and ancient text in general. I, I don't just have the Bible in mind. And I thought about you know doing a separate podcast altogether, but that got a little complicated and convoluted, and I need actually a little more simplicity in my life, not, um, I don't know, <laughs> I don't need more things. So I guess I've decided to just make it an ongoing episode and Maybe I'll only release them on Mondays. So if you, if you, if you, if you don't like the Bible, just avoid Mondays. Um, but even if you don't like the Bible, I hope you'll find you'll find this exploration interesting. And I'm calling it in the in the most general sense ancient compost. That's the way I think about old stories, wisdom stories, the echoing voices of our ancestors coming down the canyon walls, as as a kind of compost. And, and even the images, the resonant images um, and stories uh, given to us by, by the tradition, by the traditions that we find ourselves informed by, whether conscious or unconscious, um, it's like a compost pile. It's like it's always decaying and giving off life. It's always breaking down and some things stay and some things go. And, 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 or you could say like in it, if we take the image quite literally, everything in the pile is broken down and in the breaking down, there's heat that's given off and, and, and what's left is our new, our nutrients. And, we live in a, the modern world is just like starving for nutrients, for meaning, for depth, for insight, for wisdom, for anything other than the latest tweet. And, and for some reason, the, the Bible continues to beckon and call and bother me and, and tap on my shoulder when I'm, when I least expect it. And, and I want to give it my attention and I could really do a whole podcast on why the Bible in general, but maybe I'll just sort of like uh, seed that in from time to time because um, I'll probably go on for two hours if I start wrestling with this. But maybe I'll give you just a little personal, um, I don't know, personal uh, window into where I'm coming from here. And, you know, I thought if I'm just real honest and kind of annoyingly simple here, I thought the journey, so to speak, was from um, fundamentalist to evangelical to to open evangelical to progressive evangelical to post-evangelical to progressive liberal Christian to progressive liberal humanist to uh, humanist agnostic to agnostic atheist to you know I don't I don't know what's beyond atheism atheistic after theism. Yeah. Isn't that where any reading person goes? Um, 
you know, all the deconstruction only takes you to one place. And actually, that's not my story at all. And even for a while, I started saying I'm spiritual, but not religious. And now I say, oh, I don't know how spiritual I am, but I'm religious. And the religious instinct, which I actually think it is an instinct. I got that from Jung. It's that um, it's and when I say instinct, I mean something like, you know, sex, food, shelter, <laughs> religious instinct, that kind of instinct. The primal, it's, it's so deep in the human person, in the human psyche, in the human being. And it's, it's, it's that relentless uh, drive for meaning, for meaning and truth and beauty and goodness and order um, and delight and ecstasy. Yeah, that's the, that's the religious instinct at work. And that actually came alive. The, almost the moment I, I left very traditional forms like being a, a mega church pastor, then all of a sudden I had a religious life. And, and that's, that's the, that's part of the ancient narrative. It's like, you know, all of a sudden a storm comes and Yahweh, this divine, mysterious, um, elusive, uh, force throws you into the sea like Jonah. So as to drown you and swallow you up and rearrange your life. Yeah, that's, that's partly what happened to me. And, and one of the interesting things that, that happened is that I have a lot of experience with the Bible. I mean, I'm the, the editor of the first century study Bible, which I think is still available. You're welcome to get it. I'm sure it's on Amazon. Um, and I taught, you know, religion in, in religion and Bible in, in the high school on the high school level. And of course I was a pastor and I still talk about stuff on my podcast. And occasionally people ask me to speak on biblical things and tomorrow I leave for Israel. So it's still very much a part of the world that I'm comfortable with. It's part of my landscape, my, my social, political and spiritual landscape that I'll never get out of. But my point is the moment I thought, oh, these stories aren't, you know, they're gone. They're going to be on a dusty shelf somewhere. They actually started coming alive and I felt the twins of Jacob and Esau, the, the good boy and the wild man wrestling in the core of my own being. And I was like, oh my God, you know, like this, the Bible is speaking in a kind of ancient language that very few have ears to hear. And, and I had found my own ways of dismissing and categorizing it. And, and, and I might even say like the, I'm not against critical scholarship. It's, it's what I know very well. And, um, and it deserves a seat at the table. But the idea that, um, you know, if you really look at the archaeology and you see that the, the walls of Jericho didn't, there's no evidence that the walls of Jericho fell during this particular time period in which Joshua claims to, to be um, written in and, and, you know, and on and on and on, a million other examples of, of that, and also affirmative examples, by the way. It's kind of run its course, like that the kind of historical, critical, modern rubric where science and history, as we modern people like to divine history, is the only lens of truth through which the Bible can be run. And when it doesn't match up, it's dismissed. That's done. It's over. It's time to move beyond that. It just deserves a seat at the table. It's a, it's a complex book. And, um, and I, and and let's not be blinded, demanding, 
you know, the Bible play by our rules when it was not written by people who were playing by our rules. It's kind of silly, you know. And um, but much more importantly, um, I'm interested in the experience of our ancestors. It's not, it's not just a relic of theological ideas about the divine that we're supposed to believe in. It, no, we're talking about people who had experiences of mystery and of of life and of the wind and 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 the sacred, I might even say. And they tried to tell those stories about their own experience to help um, to become compost, you could even say, to feed future generations. And I think we ignore it at our own peril. And one of the things that's a, a non-negotiable is that the Western world and the world that we inhabit, probably most people who are listening to this podcast are part of the Western world, is deeply influenced by the biblical images and narratives, whether we know it or not. Same with Greek philosophy. And and so we owe it to bring increased consciousness to the ways that we're shaped, for good and ill, by our tradition. Um, and maybe the most important thing to say here is that when I'm looking at these stories, which I know pretty well, I really am offering myself, like a sacrifice in a way, again, to the images, to the elusive, mysterious images and stories, to say, now what, you know? Um, to open myself up to the possibility of be, being challenged and changed and, and, and to, to the possibility of my own resistance, say, no, the, I, this, I, I do not resonate with this or whatever the case may be, because that's the way great art works, you know? You, you don't just, for some reason, I had this Sistine Chapel in, in, my, in my mind all of a sudden because I got to see it a couple times in my life. Um, and it's just simply not something you can read about. It's, it, it has a vitality that you experience in its presence. And that's a little of the way I think about these old stories. Like I, I, I'm curious the ways in which they work on us. And they also speak, even though our ancestors couldn't imagine the modern world as we know it, um, from the psyche's point of view, the Bible was written yesterday. It is, in fact, the latest tweet. It just, if we think about the time scale of what it means to be a human being in 2.5 million year old Homo erectus beings walking around, you know, on two legs, and maybe 200,000 years of our most current manifestation, and only 10,000 years of, of, you know, modern, that's modern in the, from the psyche's point of view, religious, uh, institutions and formal religions, we could say, in 5,000 years and 2,000 years. And it was written yesterday. It's the latest tweet, and, it, and we ignore it at our own peril, I think. And really, one reason why I wanted to start this now is just what's been happening in the news and, and the invasion of Ukraine and just how all of a sudden here we are launched again into some really challenging questions about freedom and autonomy and power and um, energy and autonomy and sovereignty. And these are, I'm just sort of seeding the, the field here with, with these words to, just to stir things up. Um, and so I want to talk about the story of Babel here. 
the story of Babel is, is pretty straightforward, and and I'll kind of paraphrase it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll maybe I shouldn't paraphrase it and just read it because it's not very long. Let me um, let me bust out the good book here. Um, so the Tower of Babel is a story that takes place in Genesis. So this is kind of like prehistory, is what scholars might call it. Um, it's a little more in the mythic realm, like with the flood and the genealogies and the creation accounts, plural. Um, Babel fits in here, and it says, Now the whole world had, had one language and a common speech as humanity moved eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They mean in the sun. And uh, use brick instead of they used brick instead of stone. This, by the way, is like the author sort of dating things here. So this is the making of mud bricks. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven, the heavens, so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth." And and here you have like the emergence of of existential angst on the collective level. Like, who are we? Who are we? What is humanity? Why are we even here? Why is, what do we do with our own impermanence? Is this it? Just a luminous pause between two great mysteries, to quote Jung. Uh, what about my name? What about the, a memorial that lasts beyond birth and death and the fleeting impermanence of life itself? And and so there's this drive to, to put a, you know, put a flag on the moon, you know, to, to, to make your name great. This is the, the ancient equivalent of putting your name on a, on a fancy building, like, you know, you know, Trump Tower or, you know, um, whatever. Your, your, local, your local library probably has the name of, a, of a, an established, a wealthy person in town. And why? Because that's, this is the Tower of Babel. I mean, on one level, this is making a name for yourself that's going to outlive you. And, and, and here everyone is speaking one language, which I think is fascinating. This is actually what, what's drawing me to this, this story. When I think about what's happening around the world and, um, with the, the conversations about, about free speech that are, are taking place right now. Um, Anyway, there's this drive, and, and what they're building here is a mountain. And, and <laughs> in, the, in the ancient world, you know, mountains are sacred. I mean, mountains are sacred, period, in a sense. I mean, who, who hasn't felt the majesty of, of standing at the base of any kind of mountain? You know, that's, it's, it's, it lures us into a kind of transcendence, and one part of us wants to climb, you know, wants to see, wants to um, be closer to the heavens. And so they do make an artificial one, and this is probably a reference to the ziggurat, which is a kind of the Mesopotamian equivalent of the pyramids, and it's a sort of a triangular-shaped uh, mountain with steps going up to the heavens, and 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 they're making bricks. By the way, there's a little play on words here in 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 Hebrew. So the the word for here, <laughs> I, I said I wasn't going to go deep into. Um, historical critical stuff or language even, but why not? Uh, here's a, just a taste. The word for um, the brick here is, is related to the word for Babel. So it's kind of a play on words. Like It's almost as if saying every time you see a, a mud brick, a human, uh, 
a human-made mud brick, it's, it reminds you of this word Babel, that you, you can see where human power and arrogance can lead and um, where one language can lead. So that's the, the story. That's the background. I just wanted to let that sort of hang in the background for the next few minutes. And, um, and maybe one way of even beginning a conversation with this story is just, I encourage you to allow the image of a ziggurat, of a, of a pyramid, of a tower to the heavens, just, um, you know, kind of arise up. Well, what does it evoke? What, what feelings are, are present if you, if you wander into this terrain, if you imagine you're out on this, the plain of Shinar, whatever it was called, and, and there in, on the horizon is a human-made mud brick tower of, of um, like a memorial, a name saying, we were here. You know, what does that, what does that begin to bring up for you? We were here and, um, and you can even use your imagination for how such a thing was built and who was involved and how the king or, you know, the powers that be consolidated power and, um, maybe forced labor was involved and, or maybe it was a communal effort. You know, it's like, it's like the, uh, the Oasis song, you know, I want to live forever. You know, this is the sentiment with this tower that, that they're beginning to build up to the, to the heavens and, and Yahweh comes down and says, well, let, let, let us, that's interesting. Let us do something about this. And there's a confusion of the tongue of the languages and a, a scattering that happens. And, um, and this too is part of the great cycle, the, the ordering and the disordering, the, the collecting up of language and of word, um, and of words, which the Bible is so concerned about, logos, ordering, and a scattering, a, a dismantling, a confusion, a chaos. This is the yin and the yang of, of nature itself making itself known here and the confusion of, of the language and of the tongue. And um, so this, this story, the story of Babel has been kind of just hovering around. And last week I was out in, in outside of Tucson with Animus Valley Institute, and uh, I'm, I'm apprenticing as a, as a guide. I've been in their guide training program for a while, as I, as I mentioned before, on, on a year-long immersion. So I did the year-long immersion in, in 2015. It changed my life, and, and I never imagined I would be coming back around to the year-long, but in this case, in, as an apprentice here, as a guide. And um, so it, it feels strange and kind of amazing uh, to, to come full circle like this. So anyway, I was with a couple of other guides and, and 13 kind of brave <laughs> participants in this year-long immersion. And um, one night it was very windy and I didn't bother to stake my tent down. I borrowed a tent from, from my, uh, my buddy Thad who lives in, in, uh, in Phoenix and, and he loaned me his car. Thank you very much. And 
I didn't bother to stake the tent down and <laughs> I just decided like to power through, which never, never works when camping. Camping tip here. Um, no, it's best just to get up. Sort of like same with, I really have to pee, but I'm not, I don't want to get out of my tent. You know, this never works. You just have to have to do it. So that's what I, I chose to do, which was nothing. And so half the night, you know, the tent would just like literally be flattened on top of me and then sort of pop back up again. And right in the middle of the night, kind of in the dream state, a line came to me and here's the line. The only invasion needed now is that of the wind. And it just seemed like a little whisper, you know, the only invasion needed now is that of the wind. And, and I was thinking about the, the invasion of, of the Ukraine and, and the invading wind in my own tent. And, and so when I woke up in the morning, I remember this line that came out of the dream state or the, the state between dreaming and waking. I'm not sure which. And, and I kind of wrote a spontaneous poem. So I'll share the poem with you and you'll see how I'll try to relate it to the, to the Tower of Babel here. The, on, the only invasion needed now is that of the wind, desert wind. Sweetened with coyote yips and owl flight, there is a silence between gusts. That is the first day of creation, the ground of being, where we remember something, where we are washed in the eternal just before we die. There are wars now and rumors of wars in places we call continents and a war against all wild lands and even against the darkness of the ocean floor. No more utopian fantasies, please. Set the evil twin will never go away. Even John Lennon's imagination is too naive for the last days. I, for one, believe in borders. Without borders, we cannot know our poorest nature. We cannot love. We cannot bow in silence to the other or reach our hand through the fence. The border is the heartbreaking edge that divides what cannot be divided. If we're still enough in the wind, we can know that blessed humiliation of sameness masquerading as difference. So there's the poem. Maybe one time through is not enough. Maybe I'll read at the end again. And it's not, you know, it's not a well-crafted poem. It's just a little spontaneous upwelling here from the muse. And, um, and kind of a, a reflection on on borders and um, and it, after this poem came out, I was remembering Robert Frost's line: "A good fences make good neighbors." I can never tell with Robert Frost if he's being sarcastic or not. Some of his like his sing-songy kind of rhyme, rhymey language. He's right on the edge of modern poetry when it really drops rhyme. He sort of has one foot in each world and. I can never tell good fences make good neighbors because yes, they do. And, and wait a minute, what does he mean by such a thing? And, and it's a, it's a question of borders and, and of territory and of sovereignty and of autonomy. And, um, maybe the first thing I want to say is that borders are very important. And even if we think about the psyche and the human ego, the formation of the human ego as a formation of borders. At a certain point, all of us begin to, to experience I and 
other. You know, where, where are the borders of my own body? This is something that we begin to experience as a child. Where, what is mine? What is not mine? Um, where, do, where do I end and the parent begin? Or where, where do I end and, and the external world, where does it begin? Where, what's the relationship between these two things? And one of the things I, I want to point out is that whenever there's a violation of borders, especially when you're young, that's another definition of, of trauma. That's a, that is what's traumatizing. There's a violation of this border wall between, between the I, what's mine, my experience, and the external. When they're violated, that's traumatic. Um, and, and the other, you know, there's a, there's a diminishment of respect that's passing between these worlds. And, and maybe all of us as, as kids have experienced this kind of trauma, whether it's capital T or lowercase t, if that's even a fair analogy. We know what it's like to have our world invaded. Um, and we could even say that when nations do not respect borders, and, and, and I know borders are really the national boundaries are often artificial constructs that are politically arranged, but nevertheless, it's a reality that we live with. When they're not respected, it is traumatic. Um, it's a violation. It's an invasion, in other words. This, is the, this line that we've agreed upon doesn't actually exist, and this is, this is Putin driving over the borders of, of Ukraine with his tanks. Um, and what's interesting is that this conversation with borders and, um, and how they're respected is how we learn to relate to the other. And it's like we need a certain amount of safety to begin to feel, this is the, kind of the poetic way of saying it, our own porous nature, because it's also true that things get very, very blurry, even in the, even in, um, the relationship between, quote, the external world and my world, you know, it's even from a scientific point of view, it's a lot more mysterious than we think. And, and from a psychic point of view, it's more mysterious than we think. And, and we do have a kind of porous nature and there is an intermingling of worlds that's happening. But the border is, is the line where we get, get to experience this and to get tastes of it. And we sort of need it to go beyond it, if I can sort of speak in, in a paradoxical way and um, to reach our hand through the fence, so to speak. It's the foundation of mutual respect here. And, and we could also say that fundamentalism, which is really my last podcast, is, is too tight of a border. It's, it's, it's not the kind of border that, has, that you can reach your hand through the fence. It's too tight. It's sealed off. It's, it's, um, it's self-contained. Anything outside is the enemy. Anything inside is the acceptable and the saved. And, and we're going to keep people inside, usually through fear and tyranny and shame. And, and, and everything outside, we're going to aggressively deny um, or deride or scapegoat or blame or bomb or kill, if you want to put it in political terms. So I, I guess I'm bringing up this this kind of psychic dimension because it's like behind the question of, of freedom and what we mean by freedom and, and what personal freedom looks like or personal freedoms and, and, 
and and freedom for our brothers and sisters, for the community, a sense of autonomy and safety and 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 you know, do you want to live in a world that is that is is free to to the to the best to the best that we can imagine, um, to be able to say what you want, um, and to live in a place where other people are free to say what they think and believe and feel, and you're free to act on on to to a large extent on what you um, feel and think and see and and want. And I think one of the the stark realities of the the Russian invasion is just how how thin that reality is, how thin our freedoms are. You know, it was only a couple of weeks ago that Russians um, could get on, you know, Facebook and Twitter and for the most part, say what they wanted to or TikTok. And now all of a sudden that's gone. It just evaporates. It's, there's a clamping down. There's a limiting here. And You'll see the connection here with the with Babel as I, as as we start exploring this because one of the main questions that I'm holding right now is what happens when the narrative is controlled when there's only one dominant narrative and that dominant narrative is is almost served like a god you know what happens to the other narratives what happens to to the society, to the culture, even to the individual, when there's only one dominant narrative. And that's what the Tower of Babel is trying to get at. One language, one tower, one you know, mud brick creation, one power system. It's amassing um, and collecting up one dominant narrative to make a name for ourselves. That's the Babel thing. Um, and what happens? Well, minority voices are suppressed in the name of power and or in the name of the acceptable narrative. And, and in Putin's case, actually, what is coming out of my mouth right now? If I lived in Russia, I could go to jail for 15 years. They passed a law that if you speak against Putin or against the army, you can go to jail for 15 years. What I'm saying right now in other parts of the world in 2022 is illegal. So um, that's the beginnings of controlling the narrative. And, and, and by the way, we see this all over in our, in our modern culture. I mean, the, in an American culture and the, the kind of the culture wars right now around free speech and, and COVID sort of brought much of this to the surface. What was, what were you allowed to say? What were you not? And they kept changing their mind. You're not allowed to, you know, say anything about the, the lab leak theory, you know, otherwise you'd be shut down and literally shut down. Um, and now it can come out of the president's mouth that maybe this is a viable, you know, theory for how the, the the origin of the virus and you know so whatever the dominant narrative and whatever power structures are that support that there's a suppression of minority voices of alternative <laughs> that word alternative now is loaded because you know uh, i don't know if you remember back in the day back when trump was around alternative facts you know <laughs> um but any kind of dissenting plurality is demonized and, and, and I think we need to watch out for this kind of silencing of narratives. You might even say part of um, liberal, liberal democracy, um, which is valuable, is that what defeats bad narratives is access to better ones. 
not the suppression of bad narratives. But we've forgotten that. We've th we think that just by saying something that maybe, or somebody saying something that you don't like or don't agree with or don't believe, that they shouldn't be allowed to say that, you know? They're, they're not allowed to speak like that when part of the tension of living in a, in a liberal democracy is, is accepting that, that not, all, not all views um, are going to be acceptable by you by, or, or by, the, by the, uh, the powers that be for that matter. Um, I might not believe what you say is true. It might not even be true, but I believe you have the right to say it. You know, that's, that, that, that is brave new terrain that um, you, you're going to want to ask yourself, is that the kind of world I, I want to live in and what might I have to do to do about that, <laughs> to, to support that and, and to promote that and, and to respect that. Um, so the Tower of Babel is really a, a story about what happens when we are all speaking the same language. And one of the things I pointed out on my, on my fundamentalism podcast, so like just to review, not that you, you know, you can go back and listen to it, but one of the, the expressions or, um, uh, one of the ways that you can sort of sniff out fundamentalism is that you're not allowed to ask questions and there's no self-critique. You know, there's, there's a massive division between the saved and the unsaved. Uh, fear and shame are, are used to control people and there's use of special words, you know, and other words are off limits. You're not allowed to say these things. You are allowed to say these things. There are litmus tests. If you speak a certain way, you know, um, you know, if you, if somebody said, I, I, I've always been a Christian, well, they didn't say they were saved. You know, this was kind of from Christian fundamentalism. They didn't say the special word. They didn't say, and, and therefore they have to be, uh, we don't, the big phrase when I was a kid is, we don't know where they stand with the Lord. You know, that was like, that was the, uh, they're, they're probably outside the camp. They're outside the safe zone here. Um, but in any case, to be in the in-group is to speak the same language. And Babel is, the story is, is dancing around these kinds of theme, themes. Um, one tongue, one narrative, one power reaching to the heavens, a name for ourselves, a monument. Um, and the suppression, the suppression of speech or language or other points of view is one of the oldest sins, you could say. Um, and, and I mean sin in, in it directly as it means, to miss the mark. It's saying, no, everyone must speak and act as, 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 the, as acceptable here, as whatever we've decided is acceptable. Um, and by the way, this whole thing of suppression of speech, you see it all over the place if you really start looking. I mean, think about some of the, the sins that the, the, the American government and um, our manifest destiny theological worldview committed, you know, against the our native population, native populations, with the suppression of of language. You are not allowed to speak your native tongue, and we're going to take your kids from you while you're eating dinner and put them in a home, um, and put them in a school, a boarding school, and they're not allowed to speak their own language. This is one of the oldest. Um, tricks of tyranny that human beings have come up with. Because to speak another language is to come to the border fence and saying, okay, this is my worldview, this is my language, and there you are, and, and you're different than me somehow. And do you have the right to exist? Do you have the right to exist in your differences, in your, in your religion, in, in your way of putting things, in your language? Or 
is that something that has to be uh, driven off the cliff, so to speak? And um, or Stalin, you know, banned Yiddish. Speaking of, you know, Russian, um, the the history of of Russian suppression of language. You know, Stalin banned banned Yiddish, and he had Yiddish writers murdered just for using the language, not using the right words. And you can hear this in the backdrop of what Putin is saying about the Russian language. They're really Russians here and they want to speak Russian and Ukrainian is the problem. And, and all those very subtle um, seeds that he's sowing um, is one of the oldest sins in, in the Bible, amassing power around language and correct speech and uh, the acceptable narrative at the suppression of of everything else. Um, and, and so you could even say that, that <laughs> the Bible seems to be suggesting here that the confusion of tongues is not such a bad thing. It's, uh, it's a way of saying diversity of speech and of word and of perspective is not such a bad thing. Um, it's humbling in a way. There's a kind of humiliation that kind of unnecessary humiliation. This is, this is Icarus crashing back into the ocean and um, a humbling of what it means to be a human being. And, and that's what happens when we encounter another language, another worldview. At least that's maybe what should happen. I remember when I first moved to Israel and just like being there, like, oh my God, like, I don't know what people are saying. I don't understand Arabic. I don't understand Hebrew. I can't even recognize the characters. Now, I work pretty hard at Hebrew, but the Arabic characters, I can't even recognize. There's, there's, a, there's a cloud there, you know. And, and of course, that can bring up fear. It's like, well, what I don't know is therefore the problem. And, and, and you can see quickly how with too much power, you think, well, I can just maybe get rid of this. And the Bible is saying that's, I, the story is suggesting um, that's not the way to go. Um, so, you know, what, what am, what am I hearing kind of in the background of this story? I'm hearing something like the pursuit of truth requires other voices. And that's kind of surprising. I think to me, that's, a, that's, a, that's a surprising and subtle insight here that the pursuit of truth, there's a lot of question about truth in our world. Like what is truth? And everybody has their own truth. And who am I to say what's true? And what's true for you is just true for you. It's not necessarily true for me. And, you know, like there's a big question mark with truth. And sometimes we can get quite nihilistic about this. And, um, and, and, and everything ends up collapsing in on itself at a certain point, you know, it's like, um, there's a suspicion and, and in the age of information and disinformation and misinformation, we're just plain suspicious about the truth. But one of the things I think that I, at least I'm feeling and hearing in there is that the pursuit of truth, maybe that's the most important thing. Maybe that's the, the meta truth of truth is that it has to be pursued. It's not a given and it requires other voices. It requires other perspectives. It, it requires a, a knowing where I stand as best I can and a reaching through the fence. It requires for me to come up to the borders of what I know, um, right up to the border of the unknown. And, um, 
and a reaching out, a listening, a, tu- a tuning my ear. And, and I think that requires a certain amount, amount of humility. And we can also say, another thing I'm sort of hearing in here is that amassing of power of making mud bricks of of the anxiety of a memorial for my way my point of view my religion my god my country my flag is ultimately blinding and it might help us feel safe temporarily but only temporarily it's it's a facade it's a vacuum sometimes i'm haunted by these mayan ruins in the desert just a magnificent civilization just swallowed up by the jungle that's where all this stuff goes that it that will be the human story given enough time and and we ought not to be standing on our man-made mountains proclaiming uh we're the center of the universe but it's like the divine needs to come down and, and confuse us a bit and scatter us and, and so that we don't believe our own lies, our own blindness, fall in love with um, our own national borders and our own, um, you know, impermeable fences, something like that. And maybe another thing I'm hearing just sort of in, in the backdrop of, of this story um, is, is a warning just about the nature of the human heart here. And that um, even with all of our technological sophistication, we still succumb to human arrogance. You know, I was really sad, but when I heard that the, when I read that the Russian Orthodox patriarch, because there's a, also a religious conflict going on in the background, as you probably know, the Ukrainians um, started their own, um, have their own Orthodox church and sort of um, broke from the Russian Orthodox church and, um, which is, is, was pretty big news in the Orthodox world. But um, the, the Russian uh, patriarch of the, of the Orthodox Church really was siding with Putin and, and saying things like, we're at war with the West, um, which you can see why Putin is, is in alignment with um, the forces in Syria and certain uh, Islamic perspectives, what we would call Islamic extremism, because they use the same language, we're at war with the West, and and with Western liberal values, these are the problems. Uh, this is the problem. Uh, too much promiscuity and, uh, and godlessness. And what's needed is, is a kind of moral or ethnic cleansing of the world. This is almost the language that the Orthodox uh, patriarch was using, even using the book of Revelation, saying, you know, the end times here and we're at war with liberalism and that's very attractive. That's the fundamentalist mind rising up and flexing its muscles. And, um, and, uh, and in, the, in this case, my point is that, that the human heart is suddenly on display again and how quickly we can, we can move to pride 
and arrogance. And in fact, this week I was thinking about the seven deadly sins. I had to look them up, but um, I wrote them down. I wish the Orthodox patriarch, I wish the Pope, I wish the the evangelical megachurch pastor, you know, was reminding people of the wisdom tradition, which says things like, in the human heart, there is pride and greed and lust and envy and gluttony and wrath and sloth. And these are the real archetypal forces at work in all of us and in nations. And think how how much of um, what's happening in Russia is connected to these things. Greed, glory or pride, you know, envy, wrath, you know, we're not above these things. That's why I, I, you know, when people say, I've even been prone to this kind of thinking that, you know, talking about sin is the problem. There's no such thing as sin, you know. Sin is just moralistic, um, you know, like a moralistic paddle, you know, that, that we use to, you know, that religious institutions use to shame and coerce people. But that's, on, that's true just on the extremes. No, what's true is that we carry these things in our heart, and we also carry the opposite. That's kind of the, the beauty and richness of the tradition, that there's also humility and charity and chastity and gratitude and temperance and patience and diligence. This is the, the, the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Tov, to use uh, the Jewish framework, the inclination to do good and the inclination to, to do evil. This is the complexity of the human heart, and if we don't give it attention, then things like... Um, pride and greed um, and gluttony are going to rule the day. And our nation states are going to act in this way in the world. And, and the world is much more dangerous because of nuclear weapons and genocide and, um, and climate collapse and, than ever before. And we need sobering attention to these kinds of things. Um, and so I, I hear the Bible saying, I hear the story of Babel saying, um, be careful, be careful erecting a tower to the heavens that you end up worshiping the human ego as the pinnacle of wisdom and knowledge and insight, or your particular culture or worldview being the be all and end all. No, the divine needs to sweep in and for a visit and scatter things. And that can feel confusing, but it's, it's a humbling. It's a, it's a humble scattering, I think, that's taking place. And it's like being invaded, but by the wind, by the spirit, by the desert wind. Um, so here's the poem. The only invasion needed now is that of the wind. Desert wind, sweetened with coyote yips and owl flight. There is a silence between gusts. That is the first day of creation. The ground of being where we remember something. Where we're washed in the eternal just before we die. There are wars now and rumors of wars in places we call continents and a war against all wild lands and even against the darkness of the ocean floor. No more utopian fantasies, please. Set, the evil twin, never goes away. This is the brother um, or the counter 
part to Osiris, the king, the blind king. This is, this is the, the evil twin that, that pulls things down, that destroys. Even John Lennon's imagination is too naive for the last days. I, for one, believe in borders. Without borders, we cannot know our poorest nature. We cannot love. We cannot bow in silence to the other or reach our hand through the fence. The border is the heartbreaking edge that divides what cannot be divided. You know, I guess I'm, I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm, I'm allowing a kind of paradox to come forth here. The border is the heartbreaking edge that divides. You know, this is me and the other, I and the other. What cannot be divided, the fact that there is a kind of subtle and mysterious union at work. Anyway, back to the poem. If we're still enough in the wind, if we're still enough in the wind, we can know that blessed humiliation of sameness masquerading as difference. Thanks for listening.